Thank you so much for being here today. You are really spread out. Just wondering if you're afraid of each other or something. My name is Amy McConnell. I may not look familiar to you. I normally attend Women in the Word on Thursday evenings. I want you to know what a blessing it is to be here in the morning and hear that angel choir. And I just was sitting here worshiping with you praying this microphone wasn't actually turned on because I was singing so loud. So I'm so happy to be here with you this morning. Um, I'm normally working at a school in the mornings and participating in Women in the Word at night, but it's a great privilege to be a part of the teaching team and to sometimes get to be here with you. I'm not going to be conducting a big band. The stage looks a little different tonight, today, um, but they're preparing for a big band concert on Friday night. So if you're interested in that, I'm sure someone outside can give you some information about that. Thank you for being here on this last week of Women in the Word. We've been studying the series You've Got Mail, looking at real-life letters of encouragement written by Paul and by Peter. And we've talked about these letters and their expressions of love and instruction and caution and guidance. And we've also, for real short periods of time, reflected on some letters that we've received in our own lives. How many of you remember that funny standard form letter that Shelley got from her son from the Air Force Academy? Your son is fine. And then we had some really comical children's letters to God that I think it was Lynn who shared those with us. Well, as I was preparing, I thought of a letter that I received once that um, was so fitting for this lesson today. This is a letter written by my youngest son, Kelly. He was, I think, about seven years old. Kelly begged to go to summer camp. He's the youngest of three boys, and every year as we took his older brothers to go, he wanted to stay, and we thought he was too young. And I finally gave in when he was about seven. No one was more excited about going to camp than Kelly until the moment when we made up his bed and it was time for me to leave. And I guarantee you that it's a day that everyone at Pine Cove Camp has remembered forever. I don't think there was a more pitiful parting. Um, for older brothers to be teary-eyed and sad, it was a really pitiful day. So I left camp anxious on Sunday, waiting for word. I got my first letter from Kelly on Wednesday. I want to read this letter to you. Hi, Mom. I miss you so much. I've been crying so much. I just want to come home. Please come pick me up. No joke. There's the letter. Mom's in the room. You know the anguish. That's like a son stuck in Budapest. Maybe worse. I don't know. Um, my mother's heart was breaking, but I didn't jump in my car, and I didn't rush out to Tyler to pick my little boy up because I had a perspective that he lacked. That little boy couldn't see beyond that immediate separation from his home. He couldn't see Saturday's coming. Saturday's the fun day when all the parents come back to camp, and it's like a carnival, and you show them all the fun things that you've done. But in his heartbreak and in his sadness, he couldn't see Saturday. He couldn't look ahead because of his immediate pain. And when I look at that little letter and I think, oh, how sad and pitiful, I think, how often do we have the same struggle? We can't see past our immediate circumstances. We can't see the Saturday that God has in our future. And I think when life is hard and when we are sad and we're struggling, it's so hard to lift our eyes and to look to God's perspective on things. That's a little bit what life was like for the people that Peter was writing to. They were going through difficult circumstances, and we've talked about this for a number of weeks. 
The outside world was treating them harshly, and they were even having problems inside, within the Christian community, false teachers. We talked a lot about them last week, um, about people who were counterfeiting the Word of God and using their own desires to lead people astray and to cause destruction within the church. That's what was going on when Peter wrote this letter. Now, he wrote it from Rome, and we've talked a little bit about, he tells us in here, Peter knows that his life is nearing its end. Um, He knows that God is going to take him home pretty soon. He also knows that his believing church is struggling and suffering, and I believe he knows that the suffering and the struggling is going to continue. So he writes these letters, these inspired words of instruction and encouragement so that they could lift their eyes and look at God's perspective and look at a view from the end. And I have to think, as Peter is ending his life, you know, we we know so many stories about Peter and his impetuous nature and his jumping in and rushing ahead and fumbling things up. Um, But I think the the story of Peter's life that has the greatest impact on me is that experience with Jesus after he's resurrected when three times Jesus says to Peter, Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. And Jesus gives him his life's calling. And he says, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And Peter spent the rest of his life feeding the Lord's sheep. And I think if he's thinking about the end of his life, he's thinking, how do I end well? How do I feed these sheep? How do I give them what they need most? And he ends this letter with what he thinks they need most. They need hope. They need a view for the future the way God sees it. Just like that little boy at camp needed a view of Saturday morning. They needed hope to withstand the difficulties they were experiencing. They needed hope to keep them looking ahead and pressing on. They needed hope to remember that God had promised them an imperishable inheritance. That's what he wanted them to keep their eye on. And so Peter ends these series of letters with a perspective that is eternal, that would provide the motivation to stay faithful and to continue to be obedient and to persevere and live with hope, even when the outside world is hostile and even when their world within the Christian community was sometimes hostile and difficult. First Peter started his first letter praising God for giving them a new birth into a living hope. And we talked a lot about that new birth and that living hope totally changed their identity. It was radical and it was new and it looked like something that no one had ever seen before. And it was so great and beautiful that it had to have a lasting, changing, radical changing effect on them. So he is encouraging the leaders here, to con- the believers here, to continue living as people of hope and responding to trials with Christ-like dignity and personal uh, integrity and steadfast belief. That is a new and radical hope. It hadn't been seen in the world before, and it's a hope that changes everything. It was to change the way they would think, and it was to change the way they would live, and it was a hope that if they handled it correctly could actually grow and expand and uh, cause them to live with greater hope greater grace, and greater knowledge. He's telling them, you keep the end in mind, and you live as people of hope. Now, I think we need to digress for just a minute and talk a little bit about what does hope mean. A few years ago, I was going through a terrible struggle in my life, and I was struggling with hope. What do I hope for? And what I really wanted to believe was that hope meant you are going to have better circumstances, Amy McConnell, 
life is going to get better for you. The clouds are going to part, and everything's going to be wonderful. But I knew my Bible pretty well, and I'd never read anything like that in my Bible before. So I started a little personal study on what is hope from God's perspective? How does he define hope? And God was so gracious. Every small group I was in, every Bible study I was in, everybody in my world was talking about hope and helping me understand hope. And I quickly learned that my modern English version of hope is not the same thing as the scriptural version of hope. Our modern understanding of English says that hope is a desire accompanied by an expectation of its fulfillment. It's a desire that we hope will be accomplished. The college student says, I hope to graduate in four years. The newly married couple says, we hope to live happily ever after. Or the business owner says, I hope for great success. But there's an interesting thing there. None of those hopes are certain. They're all something we're wishing for, but there is no guarantee or no promise that those things will happen. So our modern version of hope lacks certainty. But that's not the word that Peter's using here, and that's not the word that New Testament writers use when they talk about hope. They use a different word for hope, and it's a Greek word, and this is what that word means, a fixed and certain expectation, a future trust. It means it's money deposited in the bank, not going anywhere. It's fixed and certain and real, and you can count on it. So scriptural hope is based on certainty. And that is a huge difference in the way we look at hope today. Another huge difference is our understanding of hope, like mine was in my difficult times, it's tied to our own personal desires. It's tied to our wishes. But scripture never defines hope in this narrow, self-serving ways. Scripture never says your hope is based on your circumstances, your dreams, um, your suffering being alleviated. Scripture says your hope is based on something bigger, grander, and more beautiful. Scripture says your hope is based on something with eternal significance. On your verse sheet, look at Psalm 39, 7 and 8. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. Here we see that hope is in the saving grace of God, that he can save us from our sins. In Acts 24, he says, I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. That's a hope in God's justice, a hope in the certainty that one day God will set everything right. And in 1 Peter 1, we see another version of hope. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's hope in our inheritance. Hope that we will be included in the grace of God when Jesus comes back. These are eternal things. Salvation, judgment, and a, and a beautiful inheritance in eternity with God. Hope is never based on man's wishes. Hope is based on God's promises. I'll be honest with you, um, when things are difficult, that's not the version of hope that I want to embrace. It isn't. Um, I see with a limited perspective, and I want a hope that says your circumstances are going to improve right now. But because I can't see beyond myself, God says, lift your eyes. Look at my version of hope. Keep the end in mind. God says, don't live like that little homesick boy who doesn't know that Saturday is coming. God has something great 
prepared for us in eternity. And all these things that we hope for here, they're shadow glories. They're wonderful things. They're glorious things. But they're shadow glories of the great hope that God has prepared for us. But if you're in the middle of a trial and a difficult time, you might find that version of hope discouraging. And I think that's because we have a problem with perspective. I mentioned that I have three boys. My oldest is 18, about to graduate from, college, um, from high school and is going to college. So we're having all these amazing late night discussions. Every night, about 11 o'clock, he comes downstairs and wants to start some great conversation. And we get into it, and oftentimes we don't see things the same way. And I'll say, you lack perspective. You're only 18. You haven't lived enough. You haven't experienced people enough. You even haven't experienced God enough to really have the perspective that you need here. And we've said that so many times. Every now and then he'll look at me just exacerbated, and he'll say, but I am only 18. How can I have any other perspective? And I say, I know you're only 18. You have to trust my perspective. I'm not 18 anymore. You trust me. And that's what God says to us. I know you live here, on this world, with your human understanding of time. I know you can't totally embrace an eternal perspective. God says, you trust me with perspective. He knows how it all ends, and he's told us how it all ends, and he wants us to trust his perspective, trust his version of hope, even when it seems discouraging and disappointing. Uh, Hebrews 11.1 1 is probably the most famous definition of faith that's out there. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we don't see. And you see those words right there, sure and certain. There is no uncertainty with scriptural hope. That's the kind of hope that Peter's talking about here and writing about. And that's the kind of hope that is necessary to hold on to, to live when times are difficult. It's certain and it's promised and God has given it to us. That's the kind of hope that's radical and changes everything. It changes the way we think and the way we live. And that's the kind of hope that we need to keep in mind as we study this chapter. So I'd love for you to open your Bibles with me. We're going to start reading in 2 Peter chapter 3. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's telling them some important things right there. He's writing this letter and telling them his purpose is to stimulate them to wholesome thinking. What is wholesome thinking? Well, wholesome means it's good for you. It helps you grow. It isn't bad for you. He's saying radical new thinking is required here, not the old way of thinking. He's telling them what to do with their hope. Let it change the way you think. And you see how we think is important. It's really the beginning of everything. How we think determines what we will believe. And even more important than that, how we think determines how we will act and how we will behave. He's saying, get it right from the beginning. Let this eternal perspective, this hope, let it change your thinking. He's telling them to learn to think the way God thinks. And he's saying something else that's really important there. He's saying, think and remember. All through this chapter, if you read it all together, at least four times there's this admonition, remember, recall, stir up your memory, don't forget. Don't forget. He's given us the words of hope. 
Don't forget them. Think and remember the truth that he's given you. He asks them to recall um, all the words spoken to them. He talks about the words that came through the prophets in the Old Testament. And he talks about the words that come through the apostles in the New Testament. And he tells them they are all God's truth. Hold on to them. So a person of hope accepts God's truth as the way to think and works hard to remember it. And he remembers that the regardless, regardless of the author, Old Testament, New Testament, that it's all God's truth and it's all God's word. And in his word, he's given us some keys. In this instance, what's being disputed is this truth about something that the prophets wrote about and Jesus promised called the day of the Lord. Um, this is being disputed within the church, and some people are not thinking as people of hope. They are not thinking the way God thinks. They are not thinking based on this word. Let's read about that. See, verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. He's saying, first of all, this is like the mama shaking her finger at you. You must remember this. This is important. You must understand and think the way God think, thinks. This idea that's being expressed here, there were people within the church saying, Jesus isn't coming back. There isn't going to be a judgment for sin. We can follow our own evil desires. We can live however we want because that isn't happening. That is dangerous thinking, and that's not the way they are to think. These scoffers are denying the words of God and the promises of Jesus and the words of the prophet. They're denying that there will ever be a second coming. Now, we've spoken several times in the last few weeks about this expression, the day of the Lord, and my own small group on Thursday night has really struggled to get our heads around it. What does it mean? It is a little bit confusing. Um, when we studied Second Thessalonians, I think it was Deb, she gave us a chart. Deb's always got a chart that showed the day of the Lord and, and the sequence and the series of events that were described there. But Scripture tells us Jesus is coming back. And a few weeks ago we talked about that. He's coming in the air. The living and the dead Christians will rise and meet him. Scripture promises us a series of events that will follow that including a period of tribulation, including a period of time when Jesus reigns on the earth. All those events together fall under this, this term, the day of the Lord. And those events will end when a day when God judges everything. Scripture says that's the day when God lays everything bare. And that, that day of the Lord will culminate with God judging judging people and even judging the earth and actually destroying the earth and creating a new one. And that is the beginning of eternity. That's what they're talking about here when they talk about the day of the Lord. And they're saying, it's not coming. He's not coming back and we're going to live however we like. But scripture tells us that day will come and it will be both a beautiful day and it will be a terrifying day. It will be a day when believers are redeemed and it will be a day when unbelievers are judged. 
And ultimately, we'll see that judgment as the entire world as we know it is destroyed and recreated. But the new world that God will create, he tells us that righteousness will dwell there. And he tells us that if we're believers, we have an inheritance there. That is the day of the Lord that's being denied here. And that's the eternal perspective that we are supposed to hold on to. Live according to that truth that one day God will judge it all. The mockers are saying it's never going to happen, and they're living with disregard for God's standards. But believers are encouraged to think in terms of God's words. Recall the words of the prophets. He says that right off the bat. Recall the words of the prophets, because they said this was going to happen. And when you look at the the prophets, you know, a prophet is speaking a divine message from God. And oftentimes the prophets are giving a message from God about far future events. They're telling about this day of the Lord. I included this on your verse sheet. Isaiah 66 says, See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men, and many will be those slain by the Lord. So the scoffers are rejecting what all the prophets have said. And the scoffers are even rejecting what God has said. When they're saying there's going to be no judgment, you know, God tells us his word through all these people, but we have a few instances where God speaks his word out loud. When God revealed his presence to Moses, his glory to Moses, he described himself, listen to what he said, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. The scoffers are denying the words of God himself, and they're denying the word that God sends through the prophets and through the apostles, and that is dangerous thinking. And the most dangerous thing about it is they can't even claim to be ignorant of the truth. They're in the church. They say this second coming that he promised, they're talking about Jesus. They know Jesus promised this. When he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. These are the people who are claiming to follow Jesus, and yet they're picking and choosing which of his words they choose to believe and which ones they won't believe. I think we see that every day in our world, and I'm going to be really bold and tell you that's arrogant. And it's crazy, and that is a destructive way of thinking. There was a philosophy that was popular at this time that we see today. It's a little hard to say. I've been practicing it. Uniformitarianism. That's what this is. They're saying, ever since our fathers lived, nothing has ever changed. It's always been the same. That's not going to happen because everything's going to continue like it always has. Uniformitarianism says that you can only understand the present and the future based on what's already happened in the past. If we haven't seen it or experienced it, it can't happen again. So clearly, if you embrace that kind of thinking, there's no place for God. There's no place for anything unusual, out of the ordinary. That is a human perspective. But we are to think from God's perspective. That's on your outline. Think from God's perspective, not man's. I think we think a lot like the uniformitarianism in this, excuse me, today, um, picking and choosing which of Jesus' words we want to follow. They are deliberately forgetting 
the words of God and the words of Jesus. And they're saying, if I can't see it, I don't believe it. But that's not hope. Hope is not dependent on what we see or what we experience today. Remember, that's what Hebrews 11 said. So there's a flaw in their argument, aside from the fact that they're refuting God's words and Jesus' words and all the words in Scripture. They're also forgetting their own history, because remember, these are people within the church claiming to believe and worship God. And they're saying nothing has ever changed. The natural world has always gone about the same way. It's never changed. And he points out right here, they're totally forgetting God's work in the past. They're forgetting that God, by his word, created the earth. At the beginning, God created it all. That had certainly never been done before. There wasn't a a future experience like that, that this was a copy of. They're also forgetting that God, by his word, destroyed almost every person on the earth when he sent his flood. We've talked about Noah's flood at least two times in the last few weeks. Because sin was rampant, God's justice required that it be taken care of. And God sent a flood like the world had never seen before, and only eight people were saved on Noah's ark. That had never been done before. So they are forgetting their history, and they are forgetting the promise. God says, by my word, I created the world. By my word, I sent the flood. And by my word, I'm going to send a time of destruction and judgment. But the scoffers forget who God is and what he's done, and they insist that the normal pattern of things is the only thing we can expect for the future. You know, Peter doesn't talk about it here, but I thought of some other things that totally broke the normal pattern of things. These folks, this was 67 AD. They lived during Jesus' lifetime. These were the first followers of Christ. Okay, what kind of things happened during Jesus' day that had never happened before? And these folks had embraced it and believed it. Jesus came out of a tomb after being dead for three days. That hadn't happened before. And what about what happened at Pentecost? Thousands hear a message and are saved, and the Holy Spirit descends on all of them, and they're speaking in tongues, and everybody can understand it. That happened in their lifetime, and they claim to believe that, and yet they embrace this kind of thinking that nothing new can happen. God doesn't do miracles. They were happening right there under their nose, and these folks were denying it. Our hope is not based on what we see and touch and experience. It's not based on what science measures and records. Our hope is based on God's character. And in the next few verses, Peter shows us God's character, his perspective on time, and his purpose for this period in history. Read with me in verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Peter is telling them there, this argument that where is this second coming? It's never come yet. Our fathers have been waiting for it. That's an argument and it's a critique that says God is too slow. God's slow. And Peter's telling him this isn't an issue of God being slow. This is an issue that God's perspective on time is different. 
He says, don't look at this from a human perspective. Don't shrink your understanding of God down to your human ways. Think of this from God's perspective. Psalm 90, verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Our human view of time is limited, but God's is not. We need to trust his view. One writer said this. I thought it was so smart. Man looks at time in view of time, but God looks at time in view of eternity. That's what we have to remember when we think God is being slow. That's what these people don't understand with their argument, that it's not coming. And Peter also warns them that God's delay is not because he's unable to act and it's not because he's slow. God's delay is showing us his character. God's delay is because of his mercy and his loving kindness. His delay is allowing time for people to turn to him, for people to become people of hope. Because God is just and he requires a punishment for sin, but he is also merciful and he provides a way of escape for all of us. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What the scoffers are criticizing, saying God is too slow, it hasn't happened yet, that's actually great evidence and great proof of God's mercy and his patience and his love. But the scoffer doesn't think that way. They don't remember God's truth. So listen to what Paul had to say about that in Romans 2.4. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? When I read that, I thought, oh, he must have been thinking about this, this, this group of people in 1 Peter. They're showing contempt in saying that God is too slow and he's not coming fast enough. But the warning is clear. Don't be a scoffer. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. It will happen. God has promised it. Jesus even warned about it. Matthew 24, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. That's how a person of hope thinks, not trusting in the circumstances around him, but trusting in the truth that God has given us in his word. Hope changes the way we think, and when we change the way we think, it should change the way we live. That's next on your outline, hope changes the way we live. I'm going to read with you beginning in verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. If we believe this, if it has changed the way we think, it should change the way we live. I think if Peter's thinking in terms of what's the very best spiritual food I can feed these sheep with right now, this is it. How should you live? You should live holy and godly lives looking forward. 
If that works for them during this time in history, that works for us today. Live holy and godly lives looking forward. Hope leads us to this. Well, what does a holy, godly life look like? Holy always means set apart in Scripture, set apart. And here he's really talking about be set apart by your conduct, by your behavior. You've already got your thinking under control. Holy, godly thinking should be evidence in holy, godly living. You should be set apart by your good behavior, and you're set apart for God. And what a contrast that is to the scoffers, the folks here who are setting themselves apart for their own evil desires, for their own pleasures. He says, no, you set yourself apart by living for God's desires. And when he tells them to live in a way that is spotless and blameless, I'm sure everyone there is thinking of the spotless and blameless sacrificial lamb that was Jesus. Jesus was the first person to live and demonstrate that kind of holy, godly behavior, the only person, and they are told, live like Jesus. He refers to this in 1 Peter 1, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. They are reminded that they have an example of how to live, how to be holy and godly, live like Jesus. If you possess this hope, it should change you. I loved what I read in 1 Timothy about holiness. This is 1 Timothy 4.8. It says, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. There is great benefit if we choose to live this way, live in a way that's holy and godly, and live in a way that's always looking forward. I loved this. Hope keeps us looking forward. Hope stops us from drowning in our current circumstances, and God says, keep looking forward. He's given us peace with him because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, and with that peace, he plants hope in our heart, and our hope is in his promises and in a future and eternity with him. If we approach all of life looking forward, if we approach all of life with this end in mind, two great things happen. We've already talked about you won't get stuck in the discouragement and the despair of your current circumstances because you know God has you moving towards something else. But another great thing is Peter says you can speed the day. You can speed the coming of the Lord when you live a holy and godly life and look forward. If you did your homework this week, I asked you to take a little time thinking about what do you look forward to? What events do you look forward to? What's coming up for your summer? And an interesting thing, when you're looking forward to something, it's usually a busy and an active process. We're usually doing things, anticipating the great thing that's going to happen. We're expending some energy trying to make that thing happen. I thought about um, my circumstance, uh, hoping, you know, looking forward to a child going to college. That's saving a lot of money and helping them prepare to be ready to go out on their own. What about looking forward to going to a wedding or a party or a big event? We're planning our outfit. Maybe we're getting our hair done. Um, What about hoping for a big, brilliant career? We're working on our education. We're doing our research. We're getting ourselves ready. If you're really looking forward to something, it's a busy, active process. If we're really looking forward to Jesus coming back, Shouldn't we be doing something? Shouldn't there be activity that's evident in our lives? 
Shouldn't we be doing something to speed its coming? Peter says yes. He says first you demonstrate godly behavior and you live a life that looks forward. How do we we speed its coming? If we know that this time in history is God's patience so that all will come to know him, shouldn't we be praying for the people who don't know him? Shouldn't we be giving our testimony and sharing the hope of the world with the people who don't have it? Shouldn't we be telling everyone we know about the hope we have, always being prepared to give an account for the hope that is within you? There should be evidence that we're looking forward to Jesus coming back. Oftentimes you'll hear the expression that this time in our world is um, the period of time between Jesus' two appearances, right? He came the first time to redeem the world with his death on the cross. He's going to come the second time to judge the world and to introduce a new heaven and a new earth in the beginning of eternity. So we live in the in-between time, and God has a purpose for the in-between time, and God's purpose should be our purpose. So if you're part of the believing church, you should know that God's purpose for you during this time is to know God and to share God with the world and to make God look so good to the world that they want the hope that you have. You need to know this time in history is for you. And if you're really looking forward to Christ's return, you'll embrace that and you'll be busy and active. If you're not already a part of the believing church, if you've not yet made a decision to accept Christ's sacrificial death on your behalf, then you need to know God has a purpose for you in this time. And God's purpose for you is that you will come to know him, that he is showing you his graciousness, his love and his patience and his long-suffering. He's waiting for you to become a child of his and a child of hope. Peter says we need to live our lives looking forward and it should be active and it should be busy. And if it is, we won't get stuck in our frustrations and our struggles. And instead, we'll be living in a way that advances God's purpose. He tells about one other way that hope should change the way you live. We see this in verses 16 through 18. He's talking about Paul here, and he's already referenced the fact that Paul's written about this day of the Lord. And he says, he, Paul, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's telling them there that their lives should be a life spent striving and struggling to understand Scripture. He calls us to a life of disciplined learning. He asks us to be lifelong learners, lifelong learners of his word and his scripture. I loved that he's telling him it's hard. Paul is hard to understand. A lot of the prophetic writings are really hard to understand. And he's saying, I know it's hard, so struggle with it. Work at it and try to understand it. We can make that application to all of scripture, not just scripture about the end times. It should be hard and we should struggle We should strive to understand the word of God that he's given us. 
And there's two reasons. He says, A, you will grow in grace and you will grow in knowledge as you struggle this way. That's a wonderful thing. And B, it'll keep you out of trouble because the alternative here for not growing is not good. It's destruction. It's being untaught. It's being unstable. And he says, growing in the knowledge of God, struggling to understand Scripture, that will protect you from that. The prophet Hosea, Hosea 4, 6, said, My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Who here, if they said, do you want to be destroyed, would raise your hand? We wouldn't. We don't want to be unstable, and we don't want to be ignorant. Untaught means ignorant. It means you don't have the information. I kind of think that might be either the person who's never heard the word of God, or it might even be the lazy Christian. They've learned what they need to know about salvation, and they're content to rest there and not really learn anything else. That's ignorance. Unstable means something a little different. Most of the commentaries said that means you're shifty. You have a shifty spiritual character, a changing character. And that's what the scoffers have done here as they distort uh, the scripture and the promises of God in order to accomplish their own purposes or really in order to justify their own behavior. But Peter warns them that this will lead to their destruction ultimately as God judges them and it could also lead to the deception of the undiscerning believers. And you don't want to be an undiscerning believer. And he cautions them here with very strong words, be on guard. One translation said in all caps, beware. We're supposed to struggle with scripture so that we'll be stable and not shifty, so that we won't be led astray. And he provides that perfect counterpoint. Don't let this happen, but let this happen. Grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of our Lord. Our growth is imperative. It's necessary to protect us. And I do think Shelley did a great job last week when we talked about the, the uh, counterfeiters coming in and leading people astray within the church. We do need to know that if you have had a genuine repentant salvation experience with God, your salvation is secure and you don't lose it. And that's not what he's talking about here when he says being led astray by evil men. He's not talking about them losing their salvation, but he's talking about them losing their victorious Christian life as they're led astray by lies and by unbelief. I think we always have to remember all of life is a spiritual battle between the purposes of God and the purposes of Satan. And just because your soul is saved in eternity for God doesn't mean Satan's going to walk away from your battlefield. If he can't have your soul in eternity, he's going to try and win a smaller battle. And that smaller battle is going to be over your hope, your joy, your peace, your obedient living while you're here on earth. Because Satan wants to rob God of anything that God has. And your victorious living here is God's glory. And so Satan will do whatever he can to rob that um, from you and from God. And he'll use scoffers and he'll use counterfeiters as a way to do that. So God, God, through Peter, is telling them, don't be prey to this. Protect yourself by growing in grace and growing in knowledge. He's telling them that they need to live with the end in mind and they won't be untaught and unstable. They need to live with the certainty of Christ's return, with the certainty of God's righteous judgment and the certainty of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. When we live anticipating these promises, 
then we are holy and set apart for God. And we realize the end goal isn't the person who ends with the most toys or prizes. The end goal is the voice of our Savior. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of our Lord. It's the voice of our Savior saying, I've been preparing you as my precious bride. Come in, get ready for the marriage supper. That's our end goal, and that's our hope. And if we embrace it, it is a purifying hope that changes everything. It's the hope of the world, and the scoffers have been working to deny it and to suppress it from as early as 67 AD, and it's happening now. But Peter knows it's worth protecting. It's valuable, and he tells you you protect it by growing in grace and growing in knowledge. How generous and how magnanimous is God. Not only does he plant this hope in your heart when you come to him um, for salvation, he gives you the ability to expand it, to increase it. He doesn't give it to you in a limited supply. Don't use it up. It'll all be gone. But he says, grow in the knowledge of me and it will overflow. Listen to Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has given you this hope in your heart, and he's given you the instructions of how to protect it and how to nurture it so that it can expand and overflow. I loved last week, Shelley talked just a little bit about um, this week is kind of like crossing the finish line, that you've been studying these uh, scriptures for nine months, and today we're, we're finishing this study and crossing a finish line. I've spent a lot of time at track meets this last spring, and I've noticed an interesting thing about spectators and parents at track meets. They all have their favorite spot along the racetrack where they like to stand. Some folks like to stand at the starting line because they really want to, to cheer and yell, and they like to see the runners coming right out of the blocks. Other folks um, like to position themselves kind of at the halfway point because there aren't very many people there and they know their runner's getting tired and when they come by, they're going to cheer and yell and their runner's going to be able to hear their voice. Lots of people like to stand at the finish line. That's where I like to be. The finish line is when you see that exhausted runner pull up incredible strength and you don't know where it's come from. And it's where you see just amazing determination and energy that seems supernatural. And sometimes it's when you see the guy who's been in second place all along, right behind the lead person, sometimes you see him muster incredible strength, straining and stretching, and sometimes just with the slightest inches sticking his neck out and winning the race and surprising everyone. The finish line is where records are broken, and it's where personal bests are established. But I thought, what if we didn't mark the finish line? What if we said, just run your hardest, run as long as you can, and we've got the stopwatch, we'll, we'll click it off when you cross that point. What if we didn't tell the runner where the finish line was? He wouldn't know when he needed to really kick in that extra energy. He wouldn't know where he needed to work his hardest in order to finish strong. And the guy in second wouldn't know when he needed to stick his chin out. We might stop short. We mark the finish line to get the very best performance out of our athletes. I think in 2 Peter 3, God is showing us the finish line. He's showing us that the finish line is not where we've marked it, but the finish line is eternity. It's life with him and a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. 
I think we mark the finish line too short all the time. I think we see the finish line as the house of my dreams or the easy retirement or my, ch my children successfully grown and raised. Sometimes we see the finish line as just getting out of the present circumstances and difficulty. But you know, those things are uncertain. There's nothing in this book of God's truth that says those things are going to happen. I think that's setting our finish line too short. God says, lift your eyes, don't look at your present circumstances, let me draw the finish line for you. Look to eternity with me and trust my perspective. I think that's what we're supposed to do with hope. We're supposed to let hope dwell in our hearts, we're supposed to let hope be our testimony, and we're supposed to let hope grow and expand and overflow as we live godly lives and work and struggle to increase in the knowledge of God. And if you're a believer, you possess that hope, and it's a hope that changes everything. It's certain, and it's perfect, and it's sure. It changes everything, and it's all for God's glory, here and in eternity. So let's lift our eyes and look at God's version of hope. Let me pray for you. Great God, thank you for your amazing love for us. Thank you that in your justice, you have provided mercy for us, Lord, and it's in this time that we live. Thank you for putting this hope in our heart, and thank you for guiding us and instructing us and showing us what to, what to do with it, Lord, and how to have it overflow. My prayer is that we will all come to a saving knowledge of you and live as women of hope. My prayer is that that hope would change everything and would be so evident by godly living that we can hold on to your view of the end and not get lost in our own limited view of the world, that you would equip us with all that we need for life and godliness as you have promised us. That's our prayer and that's our hope, and we pray that we can live that way in order to bring glory and honor to you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.